If you are not heading downstairs, I encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We are making our way through this gospel, and uh, we're in a section called the Sermon on the Mount, which takes place between chapters 5 and 7, and we're going to continue through there. Um, and we are just, uh, someone asked me the other day, we're like, well, we're, we're taking some bigger sections. There are days we'll take smaller sections, uh, but also Matthew is a big book, and so we're, we're trying to capture things in, in a little bit larger sections uh, to see the, the, the flow and the movement of Jesus' argument. Uh, and so uh, we'll be in chapter 5, starting in verse 17 here in just a few moments. Uh, this last year, my family and I, we, we started playing pickleball. Anyone play pickleball? Well, we are professionals. Uh, Yep, uh, we started playing this game. I mean, how hard is it? You hit the ball over the net, and so that's pretty easy. We can do that. And so one time we go out to Rainier Vista where there's a whole pickleball uh, professional group, and of course I jump right in because all you do is hit the ball over the net. How hard could it be? And uh, I learned some things that day. There's, day, there's times that when the ball comes over, it has to bounce before you hit it. Otherwise, that's a fault. Uh, there's a place called the kitchen, and you can't go stand in the kitchen. There's a lot of things I learned very, very quickly. They were very gracious to me and humbled me very, very quickly. Uh, but it was fun, and so uh, we, we play every once in a while. Uh, and pickleball is not really unique in that sense. Every sport has rules, it has guidelines, and, and it's, a, it's when you know those rules and you play according to those rules, you grow in your knowledge of their game, the skill of the game, and the enjoyment of the game. And so today, in our text, Jesus, in a sense, is going to give us the rules or the laws or, or the ethics of the kingdom of heaven. And, and he's going to explain what it looks like to be a Christian in this world. And, and as we live according to the ethics in, in the, of the kingdom that he has given we're going to grow in our knowledge of, of who God is, of who Christ is. We're going to grow in our, our skills and abilities. We're going to learn what it looks like to live for him, and we're going to grow in our joy in Christ. One thing I love about this text, all about the Sermon on, on the Mount, but especially where we're at today, it's extremely applicable. Like the application just kind of drips off the page. Uh, you can apply these words of Jesus every single day day of your life. And Jesus' expectation for the church and for the Christian as he teaches this is that we will live out the ethics of the kingdom every single day. And so the main point this morning is that Jesus requires every Christian to live a righteous life to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we're going to unpack what that looks like today. Um, so typically what I'm, I'm going to ask you to do is stand in a moment, but not yet. We stand and we read the text. Today's a big text. We're going to read all of it because I want us to see um, what Jesus' argument is, what he is calling us to do. So I invite you to go ahead and stand as we read. If you need to sit down throughout it, uh, feel free to do so, but I think we can make it. Starting in chapter 5, verse 17, uh, to the end of chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. But to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body goes into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only the brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me pray. Father, Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I thank you for this text. God, give us wisdom today to understand it. Give us eyes that we would see the truth in it and give us the knowledge and the grace that we would go forth today ready and willing and joyfully uh, prepared to live the truths of this text out in our everyday lives. Father, you tell us in the Old Testament in the prophet Ezekiel that in Christ you wash us clean and you've given us a new heart and a new spirit that causes us to love you, desire you, and to strive to obey you. Father, you have saved us that we'd be salt and light in this world. May our lives be living testimonies to the wonders of your gospel. 
God, help us to show the love of your son, Jesus, by the way that we love and treat others every single day. God, keep us from misinterpreting this text. Give us wisdom, give us grace, incline our hearts to obey you. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So we're not going to be able to say everything we want about this text. We're going to try to unpack quite a bit of it here today. Uh, First thing, it's really important, in verses 17 through 20, we see Jesus has the right to define the law of the kingdom. That's the first point. Jesus has the right to define the law of the kingdom. The importance of verses 17 to 20 cannot be overstated. Like, know these verses right here. These verses affect how we read the entire Old Testament, how we understand it, and how we apply it. Jesus comes, he says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, law and prophets is shorthand for the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, I've not come to destroy them, to do away with them, to ignore them, We don't need to to act like they're not there anymore. In fact, what he says in verse 18, he says, not an iota, not a dot, meaning not the smallest letter, not the smallest mark of the pen will pass from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus, he he, he doesn't deny the continuing validity of the Old Testament, and yet, with Christ, something new has happened. We know that he brings forth a new covenant or in this new era as Jesus has come. And we know that because he says, I've come to fulfill the law. He's not come to do away with it, but to fulfill it. So so what does that mean that Jesus now arrives and he says, I fulfill the law. I fulfill what has been written before. Well, Matthew has actually already given us clues to this. In chapters 2 through 4. And if you've been with us, you'll remember that we've continually seen how Matthew has wanted us to see that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies regarding who he is and what his ministry will look like. For example, he's fulfilled prophecy like being born in Bethlehem, coming out of Egypt, being a Nazarene. We also see he, he fulfills certain figures in the Old Testament. Like Jesus comes as the greater Abraham. He comes as the greater Adam. He comes as the greater Israel, if you remember that in chapter 2. And he comes as the greater Moses. In fact, think about Moses for a moment. In the book of Exodus, Moses goes up on a mountain where he receives the law, right? In chapter 5, verse 1, we're told, seeing the crowds, Jesus goes up on the mountain, and when he sits down, his disciples come to him, and what does Jesus do? He gives the law. He's the greater Moses. He doesn't receive a law. He gives the law. The same voice that spoke at Mount Sinai is the same voice that is speaking on this mountain where Jesus is giving this message right here. And so he comes and he fulfills figures. We also see that he comes and he fulfills events. He performs a greater exodus. He goes through the wilderness He ends the sacrificial system through his death and resurrection. So the point Matthew wants us to know that he's already made in chapters 2 and 4, and now he's clarifying, articulating here in chapter 5, is that 
everything in the Old Testament anticipates and points towards the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Christ. Everything in the Old Testament is moving towards Jesus. So in this sense, we can say the entire Old Testament is prophetic. It looks towards Christ. It's anticipating him, and Jesus comes on the stage, and he's going to fulfill all that the Old Testament has prescribed through his birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return. But it's not only prophetic, we also see now Jesus is going to rightly interpret the meaning of Scripture in light of who he is. So in this sense, the Old Testament is prophetic, but it's also like wisdom literature, and it's instructing us how to live. In fact, in verses 21 to 48, Jesus is going to take Old Testament teaching, and yet he's going to correct erroneous teachings that the Pharisees and others have done, and and he's going to give the true and deeper meaning of the Old Testament that now comes to fruition through who he is, through the fulfillment of Christ, through his teaching and through his ministry. And you'll see this because uh, as we read it, Jesus says things like, you have heard it was said. So he's going to correct the teaching, but then he's going to say, but I say to you, and he goes beyond what was said in the Old Testament. He gives a true and deeper meaning that's now only realized in Jesus Christ, in himself. So Jesus does this because he has the authority to rightly interpret the Old Testament. Why? Because the entire Old Testament has been written and written to the, uh, the fulfillment of Christ. It's been pointing towards him. So this has massive implications for how we read. When we read, for one, we, we need to still read the Old Testament. Don't think that we don't need it. Don't be like, well, you know, we don't need, need the sacrificial system anymore, therefore it's not applicable. No, no, it still tells us so many things. In fact, now we read the Old Testament through the lens of the ministry of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, what he has accomplished. In fact, you will not fully understand the true meaning of any Old Testament passage if you don't understand how it begins to lead you to Christ. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying right here. It's all written to point to me, I fulfill everything, which means as we read the Old Testament, we must say, how does this move us towards Christ? How does this, how does this anticipate Christ? How does Christ fulfill this? How, does this? how does this show us the need for Jesus? So it's now on the basis of his authority, on the fact that he fulfills the entire Old Testament, he's now going to say, this is the ethics of of the kingdom or the law of the kingdom. And the reason he can do this is because it all points towards him. Otherwise, this would be blasphemy, what he's about to do. And so Jesus now comes and he says, this is the ethics of the kingdom. And if you remember last week, we looked at the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek and, and all of those. So think of those as the character of the Christian. That's who we are. That's, that's our mindset. And those are the inclinations of our heart, what we read in verses 3 through 12, the, the Beatitudes, those blessed statements. So now we're going to see what does it look like to live those out? 
And that's really what he's doing in verses 21 to 48. If we were to apply the Beatitudes and be salt and light in this earth, what would that look like? Verses 21 to 48 begin to explain that. And so what we're going to do today is walk through six truths about the kingdom, about kingdom righteousness. And just to remind you, last week we said to be in the kingdom is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a member of the kingdom of heaven. You can't have one without the other. Just doesn't say, hey, you can believe in me, but you can't be in my kingdom. Or, hey, you can be in my kingdom, but you don't need to believe in me. To be in the kingdom is to believe and follow who Jesus Christ is. So six truths about kingdom righteousness. Number one, kingdom righteousness is required from every believer. Now, I worded that specifically because it's what the text is, is saying. And I know that it probably causes some of you to scratch your heads and you're going, where are we going? Because we're so quick to go, but we're saved by grace, Right? Like we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, through scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, right? Like we're not, we're not denying that. And this is, we're going to spend a little extra time on this point. And, and the reason is not because it's so hard, but because we read our Bibles wrongly at times. And, and what I mean is, is we so quickly want to import other teaching into what other what what text we're in that we often will lose the meaning of the text that we're actually in does that make sense so jesus is emphasizing you must live a righteous life well hold on here i need to bring in ephesians 2 8 real quick for by grace you have been saved and so we we might miss what's actually being said here because we're so quick to bring another text what we need to do is always what's the meaning of of this text and then as we understand this text, then we, we step back and go, how does that relate to other teachings in the Bible as well? Does that make sense? That's what we're going to do. We're going to say, what does this text say? So what we see is that kingdom righteousness is required from every single believer. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, whoever relaxes, the word relax means to loosen, and he's really meaning to disobey. Whoever doesn't obey my commandments, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. Now, you grab a commentary, they're kind of split. Some will say, well, I think Jesus is saying that we can disobey him, ignore his commands, and, and he's saying we can then still squeeze into the kingdom. So what they would be saying is Jesus is lowering the bar and saying, really, it's okay if you don't follow my commands and and do what I say, and you can actually teach others not to obey my commands, and you can still enter the kingdom of heaven. And I would say, is that really what the text is saying? Jesus has just elevated the entire scriptures in verse 18. Not an iota, not a dot until heaven and earth pass away, will pass from this law. But it's okay if you don't really want to believe them or follow them. Does that make sense within the context? Look at verse 20. There Jesus says, our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees if we are to enter the kingdom. Verse 48, Jesus says, we must be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. And if you look at verses 22, 29, and 30, Jesus implies that if we do not obey him, we will suffer the judgment of hell. And if you remember, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, 
There's this kind of parable. There's this teaching that he gives at the very end in verses 24 through 27. And he says, the foolish person is the one who hears my word and disobeys my word. They're like the one who builds their house on the sand. And when the storm comes, otherwise the judgment comes, what's going to happen? They'll be washed away. So again, is Jesus lowering the bar? Is he saying anyone can come in regardless of their view of Scripture and whether they obey? Can we dismiss dismiss the commands of Scripture and teach others to do the same? Let me give you two other texts. John 15, 2. In John 15, 2, Jesus says, Every branch, meaning every Christian, that does not bear fruit is cut off and thrown into the fire. That's the teaching there. James, James, the very brother of Jesus. So if you go read James, James and the Sermon on the Mount are very similar. In fact, James is like the outworking of the Sermon on the Mount. And so James will say in chapter 2, verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Think of it like this. Think of someone who's desiring to be a citizen of the United States. They jump through all the hoops and and fill out all the documents that are necessary to do that. They meet with the immigration officer, and I really don't know the whole process, so I could totally butcher this in some way. So don't come up to me later and be like, hey, that's that's not how this works. But let's just say that they come through all, they jump through all the hoops, fill out all the documents, they meet with the immigration officer, and they say, will you obey all the laws of the United States? They walk you through, and you say, no, I did not plan to obey any of them. I just want to live however I want. I just want in. I think life in there is better, but I don't actually want to obey and do anything that you say. Is that person given citizenship? No. So let's, let's well, should that person be, see, (laughs) illustration failed at this moment. Should this person be given citizenship? No. No. Why? Because they don't actually want to be a citizen. They just want all the benefits, but they don't want any of the responsibility. They don't, they don't want to come and actually believe in whatever the, the nation is that they're coming to be a part of. In the same sense, no one can say, I believe in Jesus, but I do not want to obey him. Jesus is my king and my savior and my Lord, but I will not obey his teachings. No one can trust in Christ who says that. No one can come into the kingdom and say, Jesus is my king, and yet I don't actually follow him as king. Does that make sense? Jesus' point is that if we dismiss his teachings and do not live a righteous life, then we have not truly believed in him, and we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Does this mean Jesus is teaching that we're saved by works? No. But if we import that too quickly, we'll miss what he's actually saying. We have to live righteous lives. But Jesus already told us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is to come spiritually needy to Christ. We completely rely and depend upon his grace to be saved. He's already said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Never is he saying you got to earn your way. But he is saying those who are poor in spirit, those who come, those who become citizens of the kingdom will live as citizens of the kingdom. There must be a correspondence between your faith in Christ and your works. Go to the agricultural analogy. Apple trees produce apples. 
cherry trees produce. See? Like, it's not hard. It's obvious what's in the seed becomes evident in the fruit, right? Works are the necessary result of real faith in Jesus. So he's calling us. If you believe in me, if you follow me, if you're going to come into this kingdom, be ready to live according to the righteousness of this kingdom. So the question we need to ask is, am I living in obedience to the words of Jesus each day? Do I treat God's word as the necessary guide for my life? Or do I hide behind foolish statements like, I'm saved by grace, therefore it doesn't matter how I live? Kingdom citizens are called to live out kingdom righteousness. That's Jesus' point here. Live according to the righteousness of Christ. Number two, kingdom righteousness goes beyond outward appearances. In verse 20, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, these words would have absolutely blown the first century listeners away because the Pharisees and the scribes were the most religious people around. They knew the law. In fact, they created so many more laws to prevent them from ever breaking another law. They were seen as very, very religious and moral people. And yet, what we understand is that their righteousness is no more than skin deep. In fact, later on in the Sermon on the Mount next week, we'll see they, they come around and they say loud prayers so you can hear them. And, and they make sure when they put their offering in the bucket, they do so when everyone's around. And when they give to the poor, they make sure you're all watching so they can give to the poor because they care more for the favor of man than for the glory of God. So they have a, a worldly righteousness, but not a kingdom righteousness. In fact, Jesus clarifies and helps us understand really what the righteousness of the Pharisees looks like in Matthew 23. There's a lot of woes in Matthew 23. There's seven woes. And one of them says this in verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Few are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleannesses. So here's the point. Kingdom righteousness flows from a heart for God's glory, not man's approval. Jesus is not sitting here advocating for a quantity of righteousness. He's advocating for a quality of righteousness. Does that make sense? I think this is especially applicable if you have been in the church for a long period of time. I think we definitely need to be reminded of this truth. It's easy if we've grown up in the church if we've spent 20, 30, 40, 50 years in the church to just go through a lot of religious movements, right? It just becomes normal. Why am I at church on Sunday? Because it's Sunday. That's what we do. So I think we need to ask questions like, do I love Jesus or am I just going through the movements? Am Am I serving because I love Christ and his people or because I like to be the, I like to be seen as the one who just helps? Am I here for the approval of man or for the glory of God? Or, and I think one way to answer that question is, is to ask this question. Do I grumble? I just encourage you, are you a grumbling person? What, what I find is this. Those who grumble 
about serving or how others serve are often more concerned with their convenience and their expectations than truly loving others. So we're not really here to make a kingdom difference. We're not really here for the love of Christ. We're here because we like to, and we're just upset when everyone doesn't do what we want to do. Jesus isn't calling us for quantity of righteousness. He's calling us to live according to the righteousness of Christ. There's not going to come a day when you, when you come before the gates of heaven and he says, and he's going to have this giant scale there and he's going to have the, the righteousness of the Pharisees on one side and then he's going to be placing your righteousness on the other side and you're just hoping, man, I hope it tips in my favor. It's not what's being called here. He's not calling us just to be better than them. He's calling us to have a different kind of righteousness, one that reflects our king, one that goes beyond the skin and comes from the heart. Number three, kingdom righteousness is not sinlessness here on earth. So some of you, and you might be wondering this, and perhaps it's, it's coming across this way, and you're going, so wait a minute. All right, we're supposed to live these righteous lives, and if we don't live righteous lives better than the Pharisees then, and we can't get in the kingdom, are, are we, is Jesus requiring, is the pastor saying, we have some type of perfectionism at this moment? Is Jesus teaching that Christians cannot sin once they have been saved? Have you ever heard that? I've heard those teachings before. They say, well, you know, I mean, Jesus says, you know, you're not supposed to sin anymore, as if that means we will never sin in this life again. Is Jesus saying the next time you get angry, lust, or lie that you're disqualified from salvation? Well, not at all. And in fact, let me just give three reasons from our text that we know that's not true. One of them appears just before our text, and it's in, it's in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Why do we mourn? Because we sin. We mourn because we sin, and we know it grieves God, and so we're grieved that we have not lived for the glory of God. So blessed are those who mourn. Jesus is saying we mourn as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom, when we do not live in accordance to the king. So that implies we don't live sinless lives. Chapter 5, verse 23 and 25, Jesus makes the point. We are to pursue reconciliation when we have harmed or others have been harmed by us, meaning Seek forgiveness from them. In verse 29, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, he'll say a very similar thing in verse 30. If your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out, cut it off, and throw it away. If you sin, what are we supposed to do? He's not actually calling for self-mutilation, but he is saying take radical measures in light of who Christ is, in light of your citizenship in Christ, and fight and guard against sin, especially that of lust. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. Listen, there is no Christian who is sinless in this life. But as we walk in obedience to Christ, he gives the grace and the strength to overcome sin. I want you to know, if you come to Christ, he forgives you of your sin. And so if you're here today and you're, you realize, man, I've been, I've been walking in disobedience to Christ lately. I have not been faithful. Whatever sin it is, it seems to have begun to consume you. 
Jesus isn't saying, man, you're out of the kingdom of heaven forever. What he says, come and repent. Repent today, believe in Christ, and receive forgiveness for your sins. So know that. If you're here, whatever your sin is today, Jesus says if we come to him and we ask for his grace, he is faithful to forgive. So know that. He's not turning anyone away who comes to him and asks for his grace and forgiveness. He will forgive all who come to him. Jesus is faithful to forgive. Number four, kingdom righteousness is about greatness. I really like the truth that we see here in verse 19. If we look at verse 19, earlier we kind of looked at the first half of this verse, but now we're going to look at the second half where Jesus says, whoever does them, meaning whoever obeys his commands and teaches others to do the same, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And the word great is megos. That's where we get the word mega from. Jesus could have just said, whoever obeys my teaching and teaches others to do the same, they're going to enter into the kingdom. He could have said that 100% fine. None of us would have thought anything about it. Yep, that makes sense. But Jesus says, if you obey my word and you teach others my word, you are great in the kingdom of heaven. I think, I think many Christians get discouraged at how they live. They compare themselves with others and they see themselves always as falling short. Perhaps that's you. You're always looking at others. And you're like, they seem more spiritually gifted. They seem more talented. Man, when they speak, everyone seems just to follow them and to listen to them. When they walk into the room, everyone seems to be excited about them. They're more talented. They're more righteous than I am. I really don't contribute much. You ever feel like that? Listen to the words of Jesus. Verse 19. Those who obey my words and teach others will be called great in the kingdom. Those who are great, read the Bible, obey its teachings, and teach others to do the same. Greatness, right there. If you want to be great in the kingdom, wake up tomorrow morning, read your Bible, obey its words, and encourage others to do the same. That's greatness. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 7, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that teaching where the foolish person is the one who doesn't obey, who's washed away. But the wise person is what? The one who hears and obeys the word of God, and he's said to be like the one who builds his house on the rock. So when the storms come, the judgment comes, he's secure in Christ. Greatness in the kingdom is not doing some Mount Everest type of work. It's simple, daily, ordinary acts of faith like reading, obeying, and teaching others to do the same. Know that truth. It's so easy. Just We look at others and go, I'm not like that person. I'm not like that person. And we start getting discouraged. But Jesus says, just listen to my word. You, just obey his word today Encourage others to do the same, great in the kingdom. So if we, if we put this in context of what Jesus is saying here, we, we could say Jesus is teaching us to resist being angry with other people. Don't be angry. And, and if you have offended someone, 
seek reconciliation. Look at what he says in verse 23 and 24. If you, offer, if you are offering your gift at the altar, meaning you're going about your religious duties, you're coming to church on Sunday, you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Now, now just think there. Your brother has something against you. Could be a family member, but your brother in Christ. This means you might be innocent. Do you get it? Like you might have offended them, and therefore he's rightly upset with you. Or he's misinterpreted. Something is on his part, but you know he's angry with you. Leave your gift there before the altar. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So what do you do? What should you do every week? Every week. Have I offended someone lately? And according to Jesus, if you have, what should you do? Don't come in here. First go to them. Seek reconciliation. Greatness in the kingdom is listening to God's word and then just doing what that says. Go to them and pursue forgiveness. Seek reconciliation with them. And so I encourage you, if there's someone today that you know they're offended, whether they're in this room or not, I encourage you today, go to them. Go to them quickly. Jesus makes it a point. Go to them quickly. We should be urgent in our pursuit of reconciliation. Seek forgiveness. Pursue greatness in the kingdom and obey Jesus' words. If you're a father or a mother, you want to know how to be a great mom and dad? Wake up tomorrow morning Read the Bible, obey the Bible, and teach your children to do the same. Greatness in the kingdom. You're so concerned, well, man, which, which homeschool thing do I do? Do I take my kids in public school or not? Do I let them do this? Do I let them do this? What is it that I do? Just read the word, obey the word, and teach your children the truths of the word that they would see Jesus and know Jesus. Greatness in the kingdom right there. It's not about doing these Mount Everest things. It's not about what does this person do, this person do. No, just wake up tomorrow, read your Bible, do what it says, and teach others to do the same. That's what Jesus requires of all who believe in him. Number five, kingdom, righteous. Oh, and so I skipped one. Just so you know, your number five is my number six, or... My number five is your number six. That's what I mean. Kingdom righteousness follows the pattern of Christ. Jesus is our king. He's our savior. And he's our example. Remember, Jesus is fully human. And we saw in chapter four that he's indwelt by the spirit. So everything he does in this life is through the power of the spirit. He's giving us an example. This is how you live. So he's going to perfectly show us what it looks like to live a life of righteousness. So when we read the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're hearing the teaching of Jesus, the instruction of Jesus, and we're given the example of Jesus. We're told to resist anger, to pursue reconciliation. Why? Because Jesus left heaven and he came to earth to reconcile us to himself. And when did he do this? 
Matthew 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So was it when we loved him? Was it when we were worthy of reconciliation? Was it when we came to him and were like, hey, you know, I, I really want to be reconciled. No, we're angry at God. We resist God. We have no desire to please God. And that's when Jesus comes and dies on the cross so we could be reconciled and saved. And so when we pursue forgiveness and reconciliation with others, what are we doing? We're showing them the gospel. We're showing them the love of Christ at that moment. So Jesus is saying, pursue reconciliation because that is what I've done with you. He says, In Hebrews, we are told that Jesus faced the full weight of temptation, yet he never gave in. He faced the temptation of lust and sexual morality, but rather than give in to evil desires, he hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He was pure in heart and desired to see God more than he desired the the lies of the temptations that he faced. Listen, if you're wrestling with lust, if you wrestle with pornography, there's hope. Sometimes we feel like we're trapped in those things. We feel like these, these sins are so big and they place bars around us and there's no way through them. But Jesus is saying, we need to take some extreme measures here. We know he's not calling for self-mutilation, right? Because what did he just do? He took the outward action of adultery and says, it actually starts in the heart. So by cutting off body parts doesn't actually change anything, does it? But what does it communicate? We go to extreme measures to fight and resist sin. If you need to get rid of a smartphone and trade in for a dumb phone, if you need to put all electronics out in, in, the, in the middle of your, in, of your living room, if you need to involve others and say, hey, I need you praying for me and with me every single day, that's what we do. We take radical measures to fight against lust and immorality. So I encourage you, you are not in bondage to those if you've come to Christ. We've been set free from the power of sin, but the way we do that now is by resisting that sin. And we're to take measures in that, and that's involving others. That's through prayer. That's changing up some of the things that we do in our lives. If you wrestle with pornography, if you wrestle with lust, As elders, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you about that. We'd love to get you connected with others who can walk with you on a daily basis and be praying for that. So know that. In Christ, you are free. You feel like you're not because of sin. But in Christ, you are free. And we want to fight with you to overcome those sins. We look to Jesus, we obey his words, and we trust that he will give us the grace and the strength to overcome lust and whatever sin it is that we're facing. Jesus teaches us to honor our marriage. Don't pursue divorce. Why? Because Scripture tells us that the church is the bride of Christ, and he has come to save you and to keep you secure in him. And so the way we honor our spouse, the way we honor marriage, is a reflection of how Jesus sees marriage and treats marriage. He has come that he, would, that he would save his wife, the bride, that he would cherish her, that he would wash her with the cleansing of the word, that he would give grace, that he would be gentle, that he'd be patient daily with her. 
And that is how we are with one another in our marriage. And it's as we honor marriage, and you know it today, as we honor marriage, we will be a light in this world because marriage is not honored in our culture or really in any culture. Jesus says, and Jesus says we're to speak truth. Our yes is to be yes and our no is to be no. Why? Because Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth. He is truth. Why do we speak truth? Because God is truth. And our words are to reflect the very character of Christ. And so he says, look, you don't need to swear by heaven. You don't need to swear by, by earth or by Jerusalem or by anything else to let people know you're actually telling the truth. When you say yes or no, that means yes and no. We're not to be a deceitful people, people who manipulate. We speak truth because our God is truth. And our actions and our words are meant to reflect him. Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. By his life, he taught us to be gracious and gentle with others. Jesus loved the poor and he did not retaliate when he was, when he was beaten and arrested. In fact, this is what 1 Peter chapter 2 says. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now Jesus isn't saying we don't need police officers or, or military to protect nations and things like that. This isn't an argument for pacifism. But he's saying that we are a, a gentle people. A people who do not take things into our own hands. And we are gracious with those who offend us. We are generous to those who are in need. And those things are not weakness. Where that living like that is Christ-likeness. When we do them, we show the world the beauty and the righteousness of the kingdom. And Jesus at the end says, love not only those who love you, Gentiles do that. The tax collectors do that. Everyone in the world love those who loves them. Love your enemies. Why? Because Jesus pours the rain down on the wicked and the righteous. Jesus does, God does good to both the good and the evil. And so we do not just love those who love us, but we love our enemies. And as we do that, we shine as salt and light in this world. The commands that Jesus gives in verses 21 to 48, they're straightforward. The application drips off the page. But they are not simple. They are not simple. And so we can wrestle with, how do I do this? Like, I get that we're called to live this way. How do we actually live righteous lives like this? The Christian life is not accomplished by our strength. Remember this, every time Jesus gives you a command, he will also give you the grace to fulfill that command. Do you understand that? So Jesus isn't just giving you this whole list of rules and says, good luck. If you make it, you're in. But if you fall short, the axe. It's not what he's doing at all. Let me, let me give you one text, just one text to illustrate this. Hebrews 13, verse 20. 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good 
that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go and memorize that text. May God, the one who sent his son to die on the cross to save you, may now he equip you to do everything he calls you to do. So when you're sitting here going, okay, I'm called to live a righteous life. I will not enter the kingdom if I don't live a life of righteousness. Follow that up with this verse, and he will give me the grace and the strength necessary to obey those commands. He is not saying, look inward. He's saying, look Christward. Look to Christ. Know that you're in Christ. Know that your king gives not only the command, but the grace to follow the command. And he will give you everything you need to follow him. So if you've been sitting here going, okay, I'm tracking, I'm tracking, but this is hard, this is hard. Remember, yes, it's hard, but he gives you the grace to do so. Your effort, your inclination, your desire to resist sin all comes from the grace of God. He's equipping you to live the righteous life because he's called you to live the righteous life. That make sense? So tomorrow morning, wake up, read your Bible, trust in Jesus to give you the grace and strength needed to live an obedient life and teach and encourage others to do the same and have the assurance and the joy, not because you're perfect, but as he gives you that grace to obey, you have the assurance that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And when you sin, you mourn, and you ask forgiveness, knowing he is faithful to forgive, and you continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness, knowing that he will equip you and give you the grace necessary. Wake up every day, read your Bible, trust in the grace of God, obey his word, and teach others to do the same. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. Lord, you call us to live a righteous life. And then you give us the grace necessary to equip us, to strengthen us, to empower us that we could live righteous lives. May we know that truth. Lord, I pray there's no one in here today, this morning, that feels like there is some guilt upon them, that they do not have the power, ability to live the life that you have called them to live. I pray that there's no believer in here that knows that they have sinned, and that, Lord, that if they come to you, that you would not forgive them. Lord, I pray that they know you are righteous and faithful to forgive. And anyone in here who confesses you as Lord and Savior and believes that you have come and died for them, will be forgiven of their sins, empowered by your Spirit to live a new life, a righteous life that would be salt and light in this world so others would come to know you. Lord, may we not fall under the temptation of comparing ourselves with others, but Lord, may we just look to your word and may we read it and obey it and know that if we do that, there's greatness in the kingdom that awaits us. And Lord, may we all do the ministry that you have given us. May we follow the steps, the path that you have made for us, knowing that you will give us grace, knowing that you will strengthen us every single moment to live obedient lives for your glory. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.